Quick question for you. How many in the last month have had a cup of Starbucks coffee? Can I see your hands? Look at that. That is exciting. I don't know. Do you guys know the story of Howard Schultz, how he started the company? Howard Schultz was a young man up in Seattle. And when he was trying to finance his company, he was actually turned down by 242 banks to get financing for it. I think we have a picture of that. No picture. There we go. And he he ended up getting financing from three private investors, the guys on the left. And uh, he was able to, you know, the banks were like, you're going to start a coffee shop where, what, you charge $4 a cup of coffee? Why would we do that? We can get it for 50 cents at the gas station. That kind of an idea, right? And I am so grateful that Howard Schultz pushed through and persevered because well, how would we live without pumpkin spice latte and peppermint mocha, you know? You know what I'm <laughs> I don't know if you know the story of Colonel Sanders, but Kentucky Fried Chicken, he, uh, at the age of 60, started his franchise. I mean, this is, this is he started it when he got his first Social Security check. Age 60 is when, you know, your people are told age 60, you know, you're supposed to slow down and, you know, don't do anything new and just kind of sit there, fall asleep at night watching TV, you know, just to do that, right? He's like, I don't think so. And he started this franchise of chicken. And, and again, I am so incredibly grateful because I have never tasted such delicious and healthy chicken in my life. <laughs> <laughs> Ice skater Scott Hamilton. Scott Hamilton, I'm not much into ice skating except for maybe Olympics or stuff like that. But Scott Hamilton, winner of the World Championships in 1981, gold medalist winner in 1984. Just a few months ago, the New York Times interviewed Scott Hamilton. And it was interesting what he said. I calculated once how many times I fell during my skating career. 41,600 times. But here's the thing. I also got up. 41,600 times. That's the muscle you have to build into your life. The one that reminds you to get back up. If you're just joining us, we're in this study in the book of Nehemiah. We're talking about how do we repair things that are broken in our life? And let me just kind of catch you up real quick. Here's the summary. Here's what we've learned. Step number one, you got to pray. You got to bring it to God and, and say, this is what I've got going in my life. This is what I need fixed. Step number two is you have to plan. It's just as important as praying. You've got to come up with a calendar and a to-do list and figure out what needs to get done. Step number three, we talked about you've got to get a team, people that are with you and encourage you and help you and motivate you to keep moving forward. And last week, we began to scratch the surface. Is you going to have a point in time as you're trying to either accomplish something good or repair something that is broken, you're going to come a point in time where you're going to feel like quitting. You're going to feel like giving up. And steps one through three don't matter Unless you can be the person that is determined to persevere and not quit. You can be like the founder of Starbucks or like Colonel Sanders or like Scott Hamilton. I'm going to get back up. I have to persevere. Why is this so significant? Well, it's so significant because in a room this size, there are a number of people that are feeling like they want to quit. Oh, you may not admit it and I might not admit it afterwards when we're chatting with people or leaving, but we're tired. And we're discouraged and we've worked hard to repair something and to fix something. We don't see enough progress and we feel like quitting. So beyond your pastor kind of giving you a little pep top and being a motivational speaker to you, I'm not, I'm your pastor. So while there's some motivation, there's also an an idea of, well, what principles do I apply 
so that I can be more determined and I can persevere and, and the likelihood of me quitting lowers, right? How, how do I, how do I be that kind of person? So I'm going to give you five principles today based upon the story of Nehemiah. Principle number one is a review and a further explanation of last week. Principle number one is you need to resist prolonged or accepted or to continue discouragement, however you want to say that. Nehemiah chapter 4 verse 10 says that at one point in time, the laborers, as they were rebuilding the wall, because that was their problem, the wall was broken. They had to rebuild it. The laborer's strength was giving out. We think this is both physical and emotional. They get to a point in time. And oh, by the way, you remember it was half built. At the beginning of a project, it's fun and it's exciting. At the end of a project, it's fun and exciting. But when you're half done and there's rubble everywhere and you still got a long ways to go, much harder to push through. And it's at that point in time, they're bummed out and they're discouraged and they want to quit. And the question we asked was why? Three primary reasons. Number one is they were exhausted. These are white collar workers that are are accustomed to working in an office, on their laptop, in the mall, doing those kind of jobs. And now they're mixing cement and they're laying brick and they're carrying beans and they're not accustomed to it and they're tired. The second is criticism, right? People start chirping at them and you're a loser and insulting them and you're never going to accomplish an amount to anything. And if we're honest, after a while that wears on any one of us. It wears on us. The third is because of fear. Not only had people start trying to insult them, but the army was right there and they picked up swords and they had spears and they were heading in this, in their direction. And there was a sense of anxiety and who can blame them? Okay. That's why they were discouraged, bummed out and wanted to quit. Now the clarification from last week, because last week, the point was just this resist discouragement. We want, I wanted to keep it quick, simple to the point, knowing I was going to come back to it this week. See, here's the danger of, uh, or that some of us take when we just say resist discouragement. Some of us will assume that if I am discouraged, I am bummed out, I am depressed, somehow I must not be as godly as the next person, as spiritual as the next person. Something, uh, God, Jesus must not be as pleased with me, right? And there's this subtle connection that I hear sometimes amongst Christians and churches When people are discouraged, other well-intentioned Christians are like, well, buck up. Where's the joy of the Lord? Get with it. He died for your sins. No, I get that. But do you know what just happened in my life? Does that make sense? So I need you to understand the clarification is the two middle words. The two middle words. You have to resist prolonged discouragement. You have to resist accepted discouragement. Here's what you need to get. If your life has blown up, You went to the doctor and they gave you really bad news. The surgery didn't work. A loved one has got six months to go. It's normal to be discouraged and bummed out. It could be financial. You are working your tail off and you just can't make ends meet. You're doing the best you can. You maybe even got a second job. You got a car that needs some repairs. You really need a bigger condo or house because of the family. You can't afford it. And it's normal to be discouraged. If you're a parent and one of your kids is off doing something and heading in the wrong direction and it's breaking your heart, it's normal to be discouraged. If you're trying to start your business and it looks like it's not going to work out and you're going to have to, it's normal to feel discouraged. 
So what, what I want to make sure that we understand is that it, it's okay. I, I've talked to some therapists that say, listen, when someone's life blows up, when they get beaten up by, by circumstances in life, they're more concerned if you're not discouraged when you should be, right? Because it means that you're taking your feelings and you're pushing them off over here, pretending like they don't exist, and they're going to pop up somewhere down the road, and at that point in time, not good. It's normal, even healthy, to be a little bit bummed out when certain things have happened to you. It's normal, even healthy, to experience discouragement. But it's not normal and it's not healthy to stay discouraged. It's not normal and not healthy to accept discouragement. It's not normal and not healthy to, at some point in time, fight it, move on, keep going, and live life again. To embrace joy and not stay discouraged. Does that make sense, the clarification? It's okay to be bummed out, but at some point in time when you go through the phase, and for each of us it's different based upon the circumstance or whatever it is we're going through, at some point in time, you or a loved one needs to come alongside you, pick you back up and say, okay, it's time to start living again. It's time to, okay, some things you'll never get over. I get that. You shouldn't ever kind of completely get over them, but you have to get back up on your feet and keep moving. There's a fable, a story of Satan one day had a garage sale, which I think is kind of funny. He's selling some old tennis shoes and a suit he doesn't wear anymore. And he's got this table of tools. Tools he, he's just, he's, he's, he's giving it up. He's not going to use tools that he used on you and on me to get us to fall into temptation and to get us off track with God. Tools like anger and jealousy and envy and lust and, and things like that, right? And there's one tool as you're looking at the table that's really worn because of use. It also happens to be a tool that has the, the highest price tag on it because Satan values it so. And that tool is discouragement. Someone has said that, discour- that, that, that Satan may not be able to get you to commit a horrible sin, but if he can get you to be discouraged and stay discouraged, it can be just as destructive spiritually. Does that make sense? So be bummed out if you have to. Because when you get slapped upside the head and when things start falling apart, it's normal to feel a little bummed, a little discouraged. But at some point in time, you've got to fight through and you've got to resist staying discouraged. Why? Because you, if you don't, you won't rebuild the wall. That's the point. You won't repair what's broken. You won't live the way God wants you to live. Okay? Principle number two is you need to vent to God. Vent. Let me, let me read, and I chose that word very intentionally. I want you to notice what Nehemiah prays. Then I prayed, then Nehemiah prayed, hear us, O God, for we are being mocked. Okay, so this is the stage where they start building the wall and people start telling them, you're a loser, you're never going to get it done. What are you trying to accomplish, right? Hear us, O God, for we are being mocked. May their scoffing, may their insult, may their criticism fall back on their own heads. This is Nehemiah saying, God, you know, what goes around comes around, right? They're, they're chirping at us. I, I want someone to chirp at them. Now, it gets better. May they themselves become captives in a foreign land. Here's what he's praying. You know, they're coming at us. I see them over there. They got some swords. God, I, I want someone, instead, they're going to try and attack us. I want someone to attack them. I want someone to conquer them. I want someone to defeat them and take them as slaves into a foreign country. That's what he's asking for. Oh, and it gets even better. Watch this. 
Do not ignore their guilt. Do not blot out their sins. Heavenly Father, I do not want to be in heaven with these people. If they come to you and ask for forgiveness, don't forgive them. Please don't forgive them. Get them. Get them. This is hilarious. For they, what does he want? What emotion does he want from God? For they have provoked you to, to anger. Heavenly Father, please, this one time, don't be merciful. Don't be kind and loving. I want you to get ticked off. Get them. Are we allowed to pray this way? This sounds like an angry prayer. And it is, but it's honest, isn't it? I mean, can you imagine after service, you know, you wander over to the prayer room, right? Good group of people there willing to pray with you. Come on in. What's going on? I pray for my job. It's not going well. That's not going well. Well, what can tell me what, you know, my boss just some bearable. What do you want me to pray? Pray. He gets the flu. This neighbor, pray she gets a flat tire. I mean, I just, what is he doing here? What is he doing? One of the most misunderstood concepts, I think, in Scripture is this idea of turning the other cheek. I, I'm not going to tell you what, get into all the intricacies, but I want to tell you what it doesn't mean. Turning the other cheek does not mean when your kid comes home from being bullied, you go, well, sweetie, you got to turn the other cheek. You just got to take it. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean when you're being backstabbed at work. And someone's lying about you to the boss. Doesn't mean you just roll over, turn the other cheek and go, well, you know, I got to do what I got to do. It doesn't mean if your business partner is stealing from you, right? Causing the business to head in the wrong direction. You don't just go, well, they need a little extra cash. Turn the other cheek. Doesn't mean that. And when it comes to opposition and enemy and you trying to rebuild, you, you have to take different approaches, right? Let me give you three approaches. Number one, approach number one, sometimes you have to ignore your critics. You have to ignore them. So like, you know, when I get criticized for having misspelled words, sometimes I just ignore them, right? I, I misspelled ignore. You see, I didn't catch it until second service. Yeah. Oh, okay. So what? Back down. <laughs> Sorry. Sometimes they don't deserve to be addressed, right? You just, you they don't deserve your time. They don't deserve your energy, right? And oh, by the way, it's not just enemies at work and enemies at school. Sometimes it can be someone who criticizes you at home. Have the grace, uh, have the maturity to go, you know what? I'm not, I'm not going to call them out on it. They must have had a bad day that's not really like them. I'm just going to ignore it. I'm going to move on. You bring up everything that you could at work, at home. Oh, my goodness gracious. Sometimes you answer your critics. Sometimes you discuss with them and you dialogue with them and you argue with them. I didn't mean that. And I didn't say that. And no, that's not true. And sometimes you fight your critics. You fight. And what I'm trying to help you understand is that what Nehemiah is doing here is a form of fighting. It's spiritual fighting. Some of us may not recognize the name Jim Thorpe. Jim Thorpe was a famous athlete who grew up in the early 1900s in our country um, he faced a lot of racism and prejudice. Uh, he lived during a time in our country when uh, it was not a pretty time, good time for us in terms of race relations. And as a Native American, he was looked down upon and, and taken advantage of quite a bit. He also had a very tough early childhood. By age 11, both of his parents had died and his one brother has died. So by age 11, he was an orphan and he was thrown into the system. And you can imagine that would have been pretty difficult. 
But very quickly, people realized he was also an incredible athlete. He represented our country in the Olympics in Sweden. Uh, he was one of the first to ever play both professional baseball and professional football. That's a near impossible thing to do today. It was even more difficult to do in his day. He was an absolute fabulous athlete. So one of the most famous stories about Jim Thorpe is about his competing in the Olympics at Stockholm, Sweden in 1912. One of the most famous stories is actually part of what you see on the image. Look at it carefully. On the left. Let me show you what I want to point out to you. Let's put the next slide up there. Let me tell you what's going on there. That picture is taken five minutes before Jim Thorpe competed in the pentathlon Olympic event. And as the story is told is, is that just a little bit before that event, someone stole his running shoes. And, and the hypothesis is that someone possibly even from the American team did it because we, we don't want a native American representing us. I mean, prejudice at its highest form, or it could have been a thief, but they think the other. So there Jim Thorpe was, 20 minutes away from competing with no shoes. But here's the thing about Jim Thorpe. He was determined to persevere. He refused to quit. He refused to allow those who had taken his shoes to win. So what he decided to do is he went over to the garbage and rummaged around and found one shoe. One. Then he went over to the lost and found and rummaged and found another shoe. They were different sizes different types one was an athletic shoe what we would call a tennis shoe for in those days the other was a loafer you would wear it out when you go to chipotle for dinner one was three times too big for him so he had to wear extra socks and jim thorpe thorpe decided i'm wearing these goofy shoes that don't match and they're not mine i might not win the race but i will run the race I will persevere. I'm not giving up. And Nehemiah's work crew said the same. And you need to say the same. I may not win the race, but I will run the race. And part of that involves your commitment to prayer. Your commitment to prayer, which is what we're talking about here. It came up week one. It's come up every week in the book of Nehemiah because Nehemiah isn't someone that just talks about prayer. No, he actually prays. So this is me trying to be a good teacher to you and forcing you to apply what you've learned. Week one, you took notes. Week one, you said, Pastor, that's really helpful. Week one, you're like, yeah, I really should pray more. Question, have you? Your issue, your problem, the thing you're trying to solve. Have you actually prayed more minutes than you were a month ago? And if not, why not? See, it makes no sense to agree with what Scripture says, but then not apply what Scripture says, because you don't win. You have to spend time praying. Now, we've seen different types of prayer from Nehemiah. You, you, see, you see the Thanksgiving prayer. God, you're a good God. Thank you for what you've given me. You see the praise prayer, worship prayer. God, you're awesome. You're faithful. You're majestic. You see the confession prayer. God, we screwed up. We're sorry. And today we see the venting prayer. He's venting. You know what's interesting about this prayer? From what we could tell, most of it didn't come true. Didn't happen. The, the enemies didn't get conquered. 
So why does he include it in his book? Which, which for us might be a little bit embarrassing. Imagine praying this prayer in small group. People are like, what the heck's going on? With... Why? Because something happens when you are honest and unvarnished in your prayer life. Some of us are far too nice in our prayer. Far too safe. Far too Christ-like in our prayer. That sounds weird, doesn't it? Let it out. Vent to God. Tell him what you need and what you want. Even if it doesn't sound awfully godly, because this does not sound like a godly prayer. Now, when you pray this, understand, it's not just for your personal advancement. Why he can pray boldly like this is because there's a God factor going on here. Those people in trying to stop us rebuilding the wall, eventually it'll say or assume something about who they think you are. So get them. Get them. Keep fighting. Start praying. Number three. Some of us got to get back to work. You know that good thing you've been trying to accomplish? You know that problem you've been trying to solve? Some of us have been sitting on the sideline. It's time to get back in the game. It's time to get back at the wall, back in the race. At last, the wall was completed to half of its height around the entire city for the people had worked with enthusiasm. When our enemies heard that we knew of their plans and that God had frustrated them, we all returned to work on the wall. I want you to notice what it does not say. It doesn't say, you know what? We used to be discouraged, but now we're happy. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say we used to be tired, but we got a nap. We slept really well last night, got a massage. Well, we feel great. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say we're not afraid anymore because the implication is the army is still there. It doesn't say any of that. What it suggests is this. They're willing to get back to work even though they don't feel like it. And my friends, that's a sign of maturity. To do what's right even when you don't feel like it. So what are you having to rebuild in your life? What are you trying to accomplish in your life? You don't, there's, it's, there's a hard thing that you have to work at and do... Do it anyway. Do it anyway. There are people that are going to try and stop you from rebuilding and repairing. Some of them are jealous. Some of them are pessimistic. Some are vindictive or selfish. Some are narrow-minded. And some, you don't know why. Why are you against this? I'm trying to better myself. Why are you against this? What you need to understand is irrespective of your opposition. Irrespective, listen, of whether you're winning or losing, get back in the fight. There's an interesting book that came out a while back by an author by the name of Pink. The book is entitled, When the Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing. Pink is one of those guys that writes, and and if you've read any of his books, a lot of business books, he does a lot of research and a lot of life principles based upon research that he's he's studied. The New York Times commenting on this book, and I'm just going to read to you the commentary from the New York Times. It's fascinating what they came up with. Jonah Berger of the University of Pennsylvania and Devin Pope of the University of Chicago analyzed more than 18,000 National Basketball Association games over 15 years, paying special attention to the game's scores at halftime. So they study and they looked at uh, 15,000 professional basketball games and what the score was at halftime, not the final score, just at halftime. It's not surprising that teams ahead at halftime in any sport, won more games than those that were behind. Okay, thank you. Tell me something I don't know. 
If you're winning at halftime, there's a great probability you're going to win at the end. However, Berger and Pope detected one major exception to the rule. And I'm going to show you the exception. Let's put it on the screen. Teams that were behind by just one point. The scoreboard looks like a high school game or a college game or something like that. If they're down by just one point at halftime, they were more likely to win. Indeed, being down by one at halftime was more advantageous than being up by one. They hypothesized that those that were down by one were more motivated, more determined to beat their opponent. Here it comes because they had hope. That we're not down by 15, we're down by one. We can do this. So let's stay with basketball for a moment. Let's pretend you're on a basketball team together. And we at halftime get into the, get into the locker room and we're, our team is down. But we look around and we see that on our team is starting point guard for the Golden State Warriors, Steph Curry. Now, would that give us hope that we have a chance to win? What, a bunch of Laker fans in here? What's going on here? <laughs> Do we have hope that we have a chance to win? Yes! Steph Curry's on our team, right? But see, here's the thing. We're not playing a basketball game in life. We're playing real life in life. So you got to get rid of the basketball analogy, but here we go. You ready? It may be halftime, and you may be down, but when you look around the locker room, you got Jesus on your team. Does that give you hope? Oh, yeah, you didn't say that. You said more for Steph Curry than this. Preaching my heart out here. You guys are just sitting there mumbling. Does Jesus being on your team give you hope? And get back in the fight. Get back to work. Stop sitting on the sidelines. Whatever's broken in your life, get back at it. Because you got someone on your team a lot more accomplished than Steph Curry. One little suggestion when you read the text. And last week we read the whole chapter. Today I'm having to pick and choose based upon what's going on here. Just a suggestion when you do get back to work, you might think about reinforcing your weak points. Let me show you a couple of verses. Verse 13, 9, and then verse 16. Verse 13, Nehemiah says, I placed armed guards behind the lowest parts of the wall in the exposed areas. So part of the wall had already been built, and some of it was still like not hardly built. That's where I'm going to post a guard. Verse 9, we prayed to our God. Is that important? Yes, that's week one. But he didn't just pray to God. If you just pray to God, they're going to come, and they're going to hit you upside the head. We prayed to God and we guarded the city day and night to protect ourselves. It's not just about being super spiritual. It's also about being super smart. Verse 16 and 17, half my men worked while the other half stood guard with spears and shields. So just imagine, he's got 100 people working on the wall, but now the opposition are, are, are threatening us, right? And so what he does is, okay, we used to have 100 working on the wall. We're going to only have 50 working on the wall. We're going to have 50 standing guard to deter them. So the whole project slows down, doesn't it? There's not as many workers. But he does it because strategically he knows if I don't keep the enemy out of my camp, nothing's getting rebuilt. So now apply it to you and your life, your issues, your rebuilding of the wall. Question, what are you weak at? Where are you vulnerable? 
Someone needs to turn their phone off. Amen. That's where they're vulnerable. <laughs> Honestly, think about it for a second. What, what causes you to go off the path spiritually? What causes you to fall to temptation? Now, if you can't quickly answer that question, you're in trouble. And you need to figure that out quickly. You know why? Because you may not know where you're vulnerable, but your enemy does. See, you you need to understand about our enemy is he does not have unlimited power. He does not have unlimited resources. He does not have unlimited time. So if he's going to come after you, he's not going to waste time coming after you in an area you're strong. He's going to come after you where the wall is low and where you're vulnerable. So you best understand where you're low, where you're vulnerable, what your weaknesses are. Quit being so prideful and hidden about it. Stand tall and strengthen that area. Get back to work. Okay. Number four, remember what's at stake personally. Nate talked about this a little bit. We've been talking about this in the office for a while because it overlaps with kids ministry and youth ministry, but also what we're talking about. So I placed armed guards behind the lowest parts of the wall in the exposed areas. I stationed the people to stand guard by families. Logistically, this does not make sense. It doesn't. Okay. What you should do is have a balanced team. So we're going to have someone that mixes cement good and someone who does good brick and someone who's strong and can carry the beams and someone who's good at the sword and protecting the wall. That's what you want. He goes, no, at this point in time, I'm not interested in logistics. I'm interested in inspiration. I'm interested in motivation. Watch. He had them stand guard by families armed with swords, spears, and bows. Why? Then I looked over at the situation. I called all the nobles and the rest of the people together. Hey, hey, listen up. Here we go. Don't be afraid of the enemy. There they are, right there. Don't be afraid. Instead, I want you to get back to work. Why? I want you to fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, your homes. Now I've capitalized it, bolded and underlined it for you because I want to give you the idea of what Nehemiah is trying to emphasize. See, up until this point in time, this is his speech. This is his vision. Guys, what are we doing? What are we doing? The wall in Jerusalem is broken. It's no good for us. You know what we need to do? We need to rebuild it because it'll be good for our city. We need to rebuild it because it'll be good for all of our neighborhoods. We need to be re- rebuilt it because especially it'll be good for our God and people will glorify him. Everybody's like, yeah, but he shifts in chapter four and he says, check it out. Rebuilding the wall will help our city, will help our neighborhoods, will glorify God. But you've forgotten. You will also benefit. You will benefit. So when you apply it to your life, what's your issue? What's your problem? Do you realize that if you get back to work, you benefit? Your marriage isn't going good. Sit down with a counselor, work it out, go to a conference, sit down with a pastor, go to your small group leader. Why? Because if you improve your marriage a little bit, your entire family benefits and you benefit. Get back to school and do that degree that you don't really want to do. And it's tiring and it's hard. Why? Because it gives you an opportunity to get advancements in your company and do better in your career and you benefit. Stop living on debt. Stop carrying a balance on your credit card. Fight it. Get out of it. Why? Because in the end, you benefit. Your doctor has told you, you've got to live healthier. You've got to eat healthier. You've got to lose a little weight. 
Why? Because if you do it, it benefits your heart and your hips and your back and your knees. You benefit. And we've forgotten that. We think just about how hard the work is. I know it's hard, but you benefit. Don't forget that. You get a little bit of reward out of your work, or in some cases, a whole lot of reward. I'm going to have Pablo come up. I'm going to wrap up with this last point. No matter what happens, you need to trust God. Last week, I kind of, you know, I ruined the ending for you. I told you that how it ends. They build a wall. They don't attack. It's a happy ending. I like those stories, don't you? I don't like going to movies with sad endings. I like happy endings. I do. This is a happy ending. It's a good story. Good guys win, bad guys lose. But I want you to make sure you understand when you look at this point, what I'm suggesting and implying. No matter what happens, I've intentionally chosen as the phrase, because in real life, the good guys don't always win. In real life, sometimes the illness wins and sometimes the bankruptcy wins and sometimes the divorce wins you go well that's kind of a bummer way to end yeah but see it's real that's life and here's what i want you to understand some of us we're rebuilding and we're fighting and we're running the race and you're going to apply all these principles and sometimes even when you do that doesn't automatically mean you're going to win. However, no matter what, keep running, keep fighting, and trust God. And you see it sprinkled in this passage just a little bit. Again, Nehemiah doesn't know what's going to happen. And he says to his builders, he said, here's what you need to remember. You need to remember that your God is great. You need to remember that your God is awesome. And when life isn't going well, even though you're trying to do everything well, rest in the character of God. You have a good God. You have an awesome God. You have a great God. Now, the rubber meets the road, the next one. Not only do you rest in the character of God, but you reflect on his commitment to you. It's an interesting little phrase. Nehemiah says to you this morning, he says to his builders, don't forget, God will fight with you. He will fight right alongside you. Now, if you think quickly, you're like, well, time out. If he's fighting alongside me, why did they win? Why did I lose if he's right there with me? I'm going to give you the honest answer. You want, you want the honest answer? I don't know. Sometimes I can't connect the dots. But I can give you some helpful ideas. You see, some of you, you're trying to rebuild something in your life that's broken. And if you're honest, it's not all up to you. You can be doing your part. But there's other people that I need, I need you at the wall too. I, I need you to help me with this. We, if we have an issue, we're trying to repair a relationship. I'm putting my part in. You've got to put your part in. And here's some, some of the answer. God can be fighting and working right alongside you, but he will not twist their arm to obey. Just like he doesn't twist your arm to obey. And so sometimes the wall doesn't get rebuilt and the problem doesn't get solved, not because God isn't working with you and fighting for you, 
but because someone else isn't willing to obey. Does that make sense? Sometimes, and this you may not like, but you need to know, he's more interested in your spiritual health above anything else. Anything else. And you you may want financial health and success, and God might say, yeah, I do too. I want that for you too, but you know what I want more? What I want more is spiritual health. What I want to encourage you to do is persevere. Be determined to rebuild your wall. Don't quit. Don't quit. Do what's right because it's the right thing to do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to pray for some of our friends here today, and they are discouraged, and they are hurting. And their life has imploded. I don't know how else to ask this, God. I just want you to give them a little oomph. (laughs) I pray that you would give them a, a unique and a special sense of your Holy Spirit. I pray that you would fill them with your strength to persevere, to keep going, even though it's hard. As heads are bowed and eyes are closed, I want to ask you, why do you think God brought you to the morning to church? What did he want you to hear? What does he want you to do? Think about it. Maybe for some of us, it's he wants you to fight through your discouragement. Some of us, he wants you to be committed to prayer. Don't quit talking about it and start doing it. For some of us, he wants us to get back to work, to get back in the race. We've been sitting on the sidelines. It's time to get back in. For some of us, it's to remember the reward we get at the end and to remember what's at stake personally. For some of us, it may just be to reflect on the character of God. I'm going to ask you one more time, and I want you to listen to the Holy Spirit. Why do you think he brought you to church here today? What does he want you to do? Now listen, listen. We live in a life where we're rushing and we're running. We don't time, take time to be still with God. I'm going to give you 60 seconds right now. We're almost done. 60 seconds. Here's what you got to do. 60 seconds to vent. 60 seconds to tell God exactly how you feel and exactly what you want. No varnished prayers. No nice prayers. Let it out. Tell them what you really think. Apply what you've learned. 60 seconds. Do it now.
Why don't you guys stand with me? I'll close this out in prayer. Heavenly Father, we're grateful again for your word. We're grateful how practical it is. Father, give us a spirit of persevering in life. Not just for our own benefit, but also for your glory. Give us strength. Give us wisdom. We love you. We pray this all in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Have a great week. Bye-bye, Bengals.